quite a few weeks ago, I had an email from Father Ricardo who said, Nayan, would you please preach on the 17th of November? I said, sure. Then I read the lessons. <laughs> and I figured out why he asked me to preach today. What a lot of depressing material. <laughs> and it made me think about what this was and who we were and what this language was to us and this particular translation. And we've got these the strong language, rather disquieting predictions, and they lay out some tough rules, unpleasant forecasts. And yet today's collect tells us to read and study scripture. I don't disagree. But we need to read the Bible with knowledge that goes beyond mere literacy and beyond factual reports. With today's lessons, I found myself wondering just how they might have impacted the first hearers or the first readers of the text. And I realized we could never know. Not just because we can't interview that audience, but because whoever they were and Whatever the words were that they read or heard, we are not those people. And, perhaps more importantly, the words and meanings we read and hear are not what they heard or read. I'm not talking about basic translation. Scholars have a pretty good idea of the meaning of most of the original text in this vocabulary. I'm talking about reading or hearing a text how close the text may be to words actually spoken by Jesus or written in the epistle or is another area of scholarly uncertainty. But we can be certain that almost none of our lectionary is original in most senses of the word. And what we heard this morning was in standard 20th century American English. There are two linguistic problems that scholars face and that you and I face first not only have these words gone through at least four languages, Aramaic, possibly Hebrew, Latin, and English, and English has gone through at least three major changes since biblical texts were first translated into English, from Latin, of course, and that's just to get to Shakespeare. Words shift meaning even when they're pronounced and spelled the same. Think of just about the last half century or less, and words like dude, or gay, or cool, or the meanings we don't understand when a person from another generation, someone in a specific profession, or from another English-speaking country uses them. As an aside, I'm thinking of all the abbreviations that are in use now online and in texting that I don't understand at all, and I figure I don't have to. It's too late for me to bother with that. <laughs> the second problem, for any of us, if we have read the New Testament or remember these readings from three years ago, is that we've already heard it before. And when we reread something, we are not reading the same thing because we know what's coming, at least on some level. The Greek philosopher Heraclitus wrote, you cannot step in the same river twice. By that, of course, he meant that even if you step back into the river in a few seconds, you've changed and the river has changed. Many of you have a book, maybe a novel or a biography that you just were so impressed with or loved so much that you read it again. 
And of course, you'd forgotten some of the details and probably could not recall actual sentences, but it was not the identical experience. You'd already stepped in that river. The first reading alters the second reading. You've changed. So the book has changed. Obviously, understanding the relevance of some biblical passages can be difficult, and of course, we can't ever know how close our understanding is to the understanding of the first readers or hearers or to illiterate peasants in 12th century France or villagers in Sussex in Victorian times. And Californians in the 21st century are very different people in a very different world from either of those congregations, not to mention the first century audience. Every time we read a passage or hear it read aloud a second or third time, we are having a different experience. What did you first think when you heard that passage in the letter to the church in Thessalonica? Thessalonica, as they say. The first time, this morning. The recipients of the letter, and we, are being told to keep away from other Christians if we don't agree with them. What sort of advice was that for the first audience? What sort of advice is it for us? It makes us uneasy. Do we try, ignore it and try to understand those who don't act as we act, who don't read the Bible the way we do, who don't seem to do their fair share of work? Is the Los Gatos Interfaith Council a heretical group? They're having a Thanksgiving service together, and yet it includes Latter-day Saints, Lutherans, Baha'i, Roman Catholics, Jews. Should Ricardo and I stop attending? Should we close down the St. Luke's food pantry because, quote, anyone unwilling to work should not eat? Unquote. Could the author of this epistle really want us to let people who don't work starve? Is this all hyperbole for emphasis or a clear commandment? Do we even understand first century rhetoric, figures of speech, jokes? Shouldn't we love our neighbors? In today's gospel reading, Jesus gives his hearer dire predictions about what the future holds. Is this to be a future for all Christians or just those who heard the words originally? Well, it was probably safe to predict more war since that seems to be a human certainty. But what should we make of it 2,000 years later? I can't tell you exactly. I only know that we must be careful when we try to treat the words of the Bible as literally meaning what they say in a modern English translation. In fact, the King James translation, which was published in 1611, can present problems. When I was nine or 10 years old, I was disturbed in the Methodist Sunday school that only men were mentioned. Men were saved, all men were saved. No mention of women, let alone girls. But then of course, only men were sinners. I wondered what God thought of women and especially of girls. Men means everybody, said my Sunday school teacher. I thought, oh no, they don't. <laughs> when we want to stress the truth of something, we advise taking it literally, 
But that, of course, means written down. And writing something does not in itself validate anything. There are words in our Bible for things and concepts that might have dozens of changing nuances since the words were put into writing a generation after they were spoken. Do we ever know for sure what the tone is? Are there exaggerations, jokes, puns? I was thinking how many ways there might be to say I love you. Now that's a great statement. I love you. I love you? I mean, you know, it's matters. Having said all that, my message is this, and remains. Read the Bible, especially the Christian Gospels and Epistles. They're the bedrock of our history, of our worship, and of our efforts to learn and follow the basic teachings of Jesus. The heart of our faith comes through, loud and clear. But we need to remember that we are not the original audience, and we don't know exactly who was and that much of what is cultural or personal in the text is not about our world. The stories retained and remembered and written down years later are the stories of our faith. But we must hold that faith in our own words, and we must hold a faith that is felt and believed in our own souls and hearts. The words that guide me the most are the simple summary of the law. Love the Lord God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. The first and great commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. I can't help believing that the modern English is close to the original intent. The realities of our own lives and our own culture must be part of our theology. We can't live in the first century. We believe Jesus knew eternity, but he spoke of his own time. I think if he were alive now, he would undoubtedly say things differently and tell different stories. But Jesus' message is love, and that is not time-bound. And we will, I believe, as Jesus promises in today's gospel, gain our souls. Amen.